This episode is supported by Damsel in Defense, equipping women with a plethora of self-defense tools, and also by Lumi Deodorant, doctor-developed, aluminum and baking soda-free, naturally scented and non-staining and effective. Did you know that the average cost for an average funeral here in America in 2021 is about seven to $12,000? They say that includes your basic service fees, whatever that means, picking up the deceased, viewing and burial, transportation to a funeral home, a casket, embalming, hair and makeup, display and other preparation. Again, whatever that entails. Whose brilliant idea was it to preserve the recently deceased body, put it on display, and then give them the nicest going away party and the shiniest, silkiest bed that was probably better than anything they've ever had while they were living? Well, I'm glad you asked. Welcome. My name is Elizabeth Bougeret, and I'm that person that, when studying the many facets of history, likes to peek behind the curtain, investigate the hidden passages, drop into the rabbit hole, or dare to walk in the shadows because we all know that's where the good stories can be found. Take a listen then to discover what dark or peculiar pieces of American history can be found this week from my bag of bones. We didn't always embalm our dead. It used to be very informal, in a formal kind of way, if that makes sense. It wasn't taken lightly, and there were very specific traditional rich steps that were taken, but it was a family thing. Prior to embalming and funeral homes and satin-lined titanium coffins, when a loved one died, the community would come together to help the family with the preparations. The body would be cleaned, washed down, and dressed in the finest Sunday clothes. A sheet would be spread on the table and placed in the front room of the home, usually called the parlor. The ladies of the community would sometimes assemble all of the finest pieces of furniture, dishes, lamps, and other items from their homes, and if at all possible a piano, collectively, to help the parlor look its very best. Flowers would be placed around the room to add to the ambiance and also to help mask the smell. We are on a time limit, you know. Black gauze or sheets would be hung around the room, separating it from the rest of the house, and candles would be lit, and they would stay flickering until the three days had passed. Family photos would be laid face down, the clocks would be stopped, and the mirrors would all be covered. The home was now ready to receive visitors. At this time, a black wreath or a flowered wreath with black gauze spreading out from it to cover the door would be hung. This would be to let the people in the area know that there had been a death in the family. News usually traveled fast. Again, time limit. And people, family, friends, and town folk would stop by to pay their respects and bring food. It was considered bad manners to arrive without a gift. And the gift was usually food. Many times families would take turns staying with the grieving kin so as to help lift the burden of daily chores, and also that was a time when it was respectful to sit with the deceased, you know, 
just in case they weren't, you know, really dead. It happened. This became known as the wake. The burial itself was also very simple. The body was usually wrapped in a sheet or quilt that was dipped in wax. The first coffins were made from hollowed-out trees. Or, if they could afford it, the local cabinet maker would fix them up with a nice, simple wooden coffin. A pastor or an elder of the family would speak over the body and pray for the family. A hole was dug, usually on the property somewhere. And that was basically that, a family thing. When people started living in towns and cities, foregoing their own property, that was when the bodies were buried in communal cemeteries. This is also when folks started using funeral homes. I think I read that funeral homes got their start in taking care of the deceased when the family wasn't in the area, or they didn't have anyone. These people would undertake all the arrangements for the grieving or out-of-town family, becoming the undertaker. And it kind of stuck. You've heard that the Oregon Trail is the longest graveyard in America, and if you haven't, head on over to episode 34 to get caught up. These were the people that traveled over 2,000 miles by wagon and had to bury their dead along the way. And there were plenty. If someone died early in the trip, they would stop and hold services, do the best they could to construct a coffin and some kind of grave marker. But as they went on, the trees became scarce, time became precious, and death occurred daily. Many of the traditional burial rituals were paused. Many times cholera or smallpox was the culprit and masses would die at one time. They could either have a mass burial or, as often was the case, they would leave them to die, exposed to the elements or in very shallow graves along the roadside. They didn't love their people any less, but extenuating circumstances forced them to push forward. Embalming had always been around, but it just wasn't used much in America. Or on people. Hey everyone, it's Elizabeth Bougeret here with Bag of Bones, and I have to tell you I am so excited to have Lumi deodorant as part of the Bag of Bones family. I aggressively campaigned to get Lumi on this podcast and my website, that's how much I love their products. They are all natural, and just because they're all natural doesn't mean they have to smell like dirt or baking powder. In fact, they don't even use baking powder. If you're tired of the store-bought brands that aren't doing their job and are ready to try something completely different in an assortment of scents, please give this a try. They have products for men and women, and they go far beyond just underarm deodorant. You have nothing to lose with their money-back guarantee, and when you use our direct link found in the show notes, you'll get free shipping on any order of $25 or more. Click the link in the show notes. Just give Lumi a try. Your friends and family will thank me later. Even with all the wars that America has participated in, the Civil War still holds the trophy for the most American lives lost. It doesn't help when the Americans are fighting the Americans. That's bound to alter the stats. And so with skirmishes happening all across the South and the East, bodies were left where they fell in many cases. Those who were still alive or barely alive were pulled from the battlefield, but not a lot of time or effort was able to be put into the burial side of things. 
It came to the point where mothers of the sons killed in the battle wanted their sons' bodies returned home, and that could be a long train ride. Most of the bodies literally liquefied in the hot sun, and no one wanted to go out and search for the dead for a specific soldier. At the time, recording who fell and where was not high on the priority list. Many soldiers were buried in shallow graves, and it wasn't until a few years following the Civil War that a task force was sent out to reinter as many bodies as they could find in either the National or Confederate cemeteries. Side note, there are still many bodies missing from the family records, and there are still bodies being found on some of the bloodier battlefields. Meanwhile, in London, a surgeon, William Hunter, developed a method of embalming and wrote a paper on it, detailing the method of embalming by way of re-inflating arterial veins and body cavities to preserve the body. Rumor has it that his brother, John Hunter, cashed in on his brother's science and started advertising his services in the mid-1700s. John Hunter made headlines when he embalmed the wife of client Martin Van Butchel. Van Butchel's wife, Mary, died in January of 1775, and in addition to embalming her for his client, he also used this piece of work as an advertisement. He injected the body with his blend of preservatives and color additives that gave a glow to the dead woman's cheeks. He even went further by replacing her eyes with those made of glass. He dipped her body in plaster of Paris and then dressed her in the finest lace before putting her on display at his shop. The rumor continues that when he started to get some negative feedback for the time the corpse stayed in the window of his shop, it is believed he claimed that his client's control of his wife's estate would end the moment he buried her. So the longer they could keep her above ground, the longer he would have to get his affairs in order. But back here in the States, the technology was known but rarely used. Doctors and scientists had been using arsenic, that clever little chemical element that loves to make an appearance on Bag of Bones episodes. They used the chemical form to soak their specimens in to help preserve them for longer. Eventually, doctors experimented on human bodies, not so much for families, but for the students. The students needed cadavers to practice on, so the arsenic worked just enough to keep the bodies from decaying too quickly. This led to a large number of arsenic poisonings in the medical community as well. When the call was put out that one of Lincoln's, that's President Lincoln, by the way, one of his closest friends that he had known back in his lawyer days and watched him follow his dreams to become a military commander, Elmer E. Ellsworth was the first casualty of the Civil War. Lincoln, who had been following the development and progress of embalming methods, wanted his memory to be honored. He requested that his physicians look into this embalming craze. They did, and Ellsworth's body was displayed to crowds numbering in the thousands for weeks. It would travel to city after city by train, so the masses could participate in grieving his death. With Ellsworth's death, it was not only a shock to the people of the North, but it galvanized the fact that there really was a war happening, and they were looking at their first casualty. His death became the cry to action as banners were flown all along his death processional, claiming that justice would be done to avenge his death. Songs were sung about him, poems were written and printed, 
both actually quite a feat since he'd only been in the military action for like five minutes. But the lifelike body being passed around for all to see worked publicity miracles. Thousands signed up to fight for the North. I'm not sure that was Lincoln's intent when he requested the embalming to take place, but it sure aided in the recruitment efforts. It was Dr. August Wilhelm von Hoffmann, a German chemist, that realized the power of formaldehyde to preserve the decaying of the body worked so much better than the formerly used arsenic and alcohol, and introduced it to the medical community. But the concept of injecting it into the carotid artery to run through the entire body came from French chemist Jean Ganal. His purpose, again, was more for his students to study anatomy without having to worry about the putrefaction and decay. It didn't take long for it to become more widely available. With the dying sons of the North and the parents willing to pay extra to have their sons returned to them, Dr. Thomas Holmes was assigned the commission that would make this happen. He was sent to the Army Medical Corps where he was in charge of embalming officers who were killed in battle. He reportedly embalmed over 4,000 soldiers and officers. He soon realized that a profit could be made, so Holmes resigned his commission and started charging $100 per body for his embalming services. He had shops on Washington, Georgetown, and Alexandria who would display his handiwork in the storefronts. He would take the bodies of the unclaimed soldiers and embalm them for his window displays. Luckily, no one ever came up to claim the unclaimed after seeing them displayed as such. Representatives for the newfangled embalming fluids would travel the country and offer two-day schools to learn the skill of embalming, using their product, of course. After their classes and a hefty purchase of embalming fluid, the undertaker would receive a certificate to show that he was now a recognized embalmer. This was the first step in the state licensing that would eventually take precedence in the 1930s. But for now, if you think about it, most doctors and dentists of the time were practically self-taught or with little training. And now these embalmers slash undertakers, who were most likely former cabinet makers, now had more skilled training than the medical doctors. These brand new embalmers would begin to follow the battles around the country and were portrayed as, quote, vultures fattening themselves on the dead, end quote. They would pitch their traveling sales tents and offer services to the soldiers prior to battle. They could prepay for the embalming services should they be killed they would know that it was already taken care of, for their loved ones, of course. The embalming surgeons, Brown and Alexander, had become very popular at this time. They would one-up their competition, claiming not to be like the other undertakers who used the outdated, quote, arsenic and other poisonous chemicals. They used instead, quote, a preparation which in a short time renders the body hard and marble-like in character, end quote. And for those who had, quote, been so unfortunate as to fall by wounds or disease while struggling for freedom in the great war now raging, they would be happy to practice their art upon any such of their fellow countrymen, end quote. Or this advertisement claims the convenience, quote, the dead embalmed, coffined, and expressed to any part of the United States. Persons wishing to recover the remains of the deceased friends and relatives will save a great expense, time, and perplexity of a long journey by sending us their orders. All orders must be prepaid. End quote. 
In January of 1865, General Ulysses S. Grant took away the embalmer's permits, seeing that it was affecting the morale of the men and made them keep their sails and hawking behind battle lines. Lincoln himself would be embalmed after his passing. His blood would be drained from the jugular vein and, quote, sacredly preserved. Then his veins would be refilled with the new formaldehyde alcohol mix. He was displayed in a walnut coffin and then went on a 20-day tour of about 1,700 miles. It's said that over 1.5 million people viewed the body of a most beloved president, and as many as 7 million more stood by to watch the hearse or his train pass by. Side note, Thomas Holmes, the one who would be known as the father of modern embalming, chose not to be embalmed after his death. Hello listeners, we're Katie, Amber, Kylie, and Matt. And we are the hosts of Save Me an Isle Seat, a show that talks about musicals in an understandable and relatable way. If you like musicals or theater in general, or if you're interested in them but don't know where to start, we'd love to help introduce you. Come find us wherever you listen to your podcasts. Or on our website at www.ragtagnetwork.com. And we'll be sure to save you an aisle seat. Eventually, embalming corpses became the norm. And in most states, it's automatically assumed you want your loved one embalmed, and you have to specify if you want otherwise. Of course, if you're wanting an open casket memorial service, prepare to have your request be vetoed. The embalming process is made up of some serious chemicals these days, such as not just formaldehyde, but also has since added phenol, methanol, and glycerin. They all prevent the body from putrefying and therefore allows the loved ones to hold the memorial service practically any time, even decades into the future. The deceased shall not stink or lose their shape, allowing the body to be transported anywhere or to allow the family members time to get their affairs in order to be able to attend. Since the simple days of parlor viewings, we have learned so much more about the decomposition of the body. I mean, besides the smell. Turns out, once the heart stops beating and the body begins to decompose, there are still organisms present that continue to survive, feeding off of the tissue, and may be dangerous to the living. Those who come in contact with these infections could become infected themselves, so embalming helps to disinfect the body of any dangerous pathogens. And let's not forget the flies. Flies are still a thing. Stephen E. Nash, a writer for the online magazine Sapiens, says, quote, Embalming requires at least 10 steps, including massage to alleviate rigor mortis, setting the face, which requires wiring the jaw shut, stitches to hold the lips in place, and caps under the eyes, which I still don't understand, to create the desired expression, and detailed attention to specific problem areas in which gases may have built up within the body. He adds, embalming is an invasive and violent process that results quite amazingly in a corpse that appears at rest and at peace. Morticians expertly create a doppelganger, one that friends and family can view with minimal shock and dismay. Embalming produces an aesthetic veil, a membrane behind which the violence of death and natural decay are hidden. End quote. Some of the things he didn't mention of the process was that the body is completely emptied of liquid. It's sucked through a metal tube, then the organs are punctured 
and they are sucked dry as well. Cotton is inserted into the throat, nose, and mouth to prevent surprise leaks. Cotton is also used in shaping the mouth, especially for those who had no teeth. I found out what the caps were for that he had mentioned. When you die, your eyes start to sink back into the skull, and there are those who donate their eyes, so the caps are placed under the eyelid to help keep its shape. I can't be the only one that was curious about that, right? Those that are not fan of embalming remind us that over 800,000 gallons of formaldehyde-based embalming fluid is buried in our American soil every single year. And with our non-decaying bodies in our non-disintegrating coffins, our dead take up a lot of space. Many cultures these days are requiring cremation. Some allow you to bury the containers in cemeteries, in layers, and others don't require burial at all. It's said that in the United States that over a million acres of land is being used to house the dead in concrete vaults. According to the Berkeley Planning Journal, they say that, quote, conventional burials in the United States every year use 30 million board feet of hardwoods, 2,700 tons of copper and bronze, 104,272 tons of steel, and 1,636,000 tons of reinforced concrete. They go on to say that the amount of casket wood alone is the equivalent of about 4 million acres of forest and could build about 4.5 million homes. What do they suggest instead? How do you feel about skipping the embalming and being buried to eventually grow into a tree? Body pods are eliminating cemeteries and are committing to growing their very own haunted forests. Oh, did I say haunted forests? I meant forests. Just, you know, forests. You can have your ashes sunk to the bottom of the ocean in a special ball that will feed the fish and support the coral. Or there's a natural water cremation. It turns the body to ashes but without releasing harmful toxins into the air that might come from the soot or the mercury emissions that would come from dental work. The things you didn't know you were going to think about when you woke up this morning. Bag of bones. (laughs) You're welcome. Even though the topic of embalming has its supporters on both sides, the psychological effects of closure, allowing the loved ones to see the deceased one last time, in a lifelike form, is said to aid the healing and the grieving process. However, I did not find any evidence from any doctors or social workers to substantiate this fact. Most of the information came from the funeral homes themselves. Take that for what it's worth. And, in case you're wondering, actually the experts from both sides of the fence can agree that the best method for the body, the earth, the families, and the environment is to allow the body to naturally do its thing, while buried in either a simple wooden coffin or dropped into the ocean, or wrapped in a cotton sheet. Hmm, where have I heard that before? And one final story, if you can handle it. Let's take a quick break and recognize one of our supporters, and I'll tell you why embalming meant so much to President Abraham Lincoln. As a mother of grown daughters, and with me traveling alone across the country, personal safety is always on my mind. 
I am always aware of my surroundings. I always let my people know where and when I'm going places. But to add that extra level of safety, I am never unprotected. Thanks to Damsel in Defense, I have several options for my personal safety and can I just say, they are super cute. But don't think that just because they have bling that they won't do some damage to allow you to get to safety. And Damsel in Defense has thought of everything. DNA grab, GPS alerts, and easy to carry and access should the need ever arise. For your safety and all the women in your sphere, I beg you to check out these amazing products at www.mydamselpro.net forward slash bones. That's www.mydamselpro.net forward slash bones. On February 20th, 1862, the President of the United States sat beside the bed of his 11-year-old son, William. For two weeks he fought for his life, but now he was tired. He was dying of typhoid fever. By five o'clock that evening, Willie Lincoln took his last breath. President Lincoln was so overcome with grief that he uttered only a few words in order to comfort those in the room, and then he excused himself to hide out in his office for the rest of the night. Elizabeth Keckley, who would take the honor of washing and dressing the boy, would recall, quote, his tall frame convulsed with emotion. I shall never forget those solemn moments, genius and greatness weeping over love's idol lost, end quote. Mary Lincoln was, of course, inconsolable with the death of her child. This would be her second son lost, and her youngest boy, Tad, was fighting for his life in the very next room. Willie's body was taken to the green room where the embalming was performed by Henry P. Cattell, the most skilled embalmer of the time. He was placed in a metallic coffin. His name, birth, and death dates were inscribed on a silver plate and attached to the side. Following a service which Mary Lincoln did not attend, she preferred to stay in her room to grieve alone. A hearse carriage drawn by two white horses led before the president's carriage pulled by two black horses made their way slowly through the streets to the cemetery. Lincoln could not bear to be apart from his son's earthly remains, so instead of sending Willie back to the family's plot in Illinois, he borrowed a space in his friend William Thomas Carroll's vault. There he would return several times to visit his son, and on at least two occasions he requests the lid to be opened so that he may see him once more. He would sit beside the coffin for hours before returning to the White House. After President Lincoln's assassination in April 1865, Willie's coffin was removed and placed on the funeral train. Both father and son are permanently buried at Oak Ridge Cemetery in Springfield, Illinois. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Bag of Bones. Special thanks to everyone who has suggested ideas for us to celebrate our first anniversary. I've gotten suggestions about having a contest, giveaways, listener suggestions, guest hosts, and free stuff. There's still a few more episodes before we hit our anniversary, so it's not too late to share your idea. I'd love to hear it. You can find me on the Facebook Bag of Bones page or on Instagram. Or you can email me through my website, www.elizabethbougeret.com. 
If you're having trouble coming up with celebratory ideas, no worries. If you haven't yet left a 5-star rating and review, that would be really great and such a great impact on those who might be introduced to this podcast. So let me thank you in advance for that. I'll meet you back here next week to get us one episode closer to our anniversary. I'm Elizabeth Bougeret. Until next week then. Bag of Bones is created and hosted by Elizabeth Bougeret, produced by the Ragtag Network and History Revisited, music by Johnny Reed. To learn more about the show, visit elizabethbougeret.com. For more podcasts from the Ragtag Network, visit their website at www.ragtagnetwork.com. Copyrights by Elizabeth Bougeret and DCT Enterprises.